and welcome back this is season 13 of the fly i am here with austin i'm andrea we're your hosts for today's episode and we are so excited for our new name for this season the fly we're really excited for all the content that we will be producing so we're excited for you to listen now austin how was your weekend it was good, Andrea. I'm very excited about the new season as well as the new name. Um, it's a little bit rainy out. What's your typical rainy day activities? Yeah, it's very rainy and dampy out. So I personally, being from California, just love to stay inside and be all cozy with a cup of hot chocolate or coffee and listening to podcasts, especially The Fly. Yes, it's a perfect weather to listen to podcasts, especially with Fly, and today's episode with MJ Lee. She's the CNN Senior White House Correspondent. She covered both the 2016 and 2020 presidential races, and she played a pivotal role in reporting on the Me Too movement. Enjoy the episode. Yes, definitely. I absolutely love talking to her. She was amazing, so definitely enjoy. Grab your cup of hot cocoa, get cozy, and enjoy our episode. much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time and we're so excited to kick off season 13 with you. So we wanted to just get right into it. Um, so you were born in South Korea, grew up in Hong Kong. And so your perspective on U.S. American politics must be like a little bit more unconventional and different than somebody who grew up here. So how would that influence your reporting and the way you go about your stories and that sort of thing? Um, Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, you're right that I was born in Korea. I grew up mostly in Hong Kong. So I'm not your sort of typical, I think, American journalist. Um, Just in that I have an upbringing that wasn't based in the States. Um, I think I didn't come into journalism with a lot of the knowledge that a person might have if they spent their entire lives here. Um, And I think that's actually mostly been a good thing. So when I got to Georgetown, I had roommates who were very politically involved and my sort of coming into being and learning about American politics really for the first time uh, was very much about uh, learning from my roommates and my friends on campus. Um, So that was sort of my first introduction to American politics. And I think that I just didn't know a lot and came at American politics with a really fresh and new and not knowing perspective. Um, And my husband will actually often joke that he likes to ask me questions. He's also a political journalist. He likes to ask me questions sometimes just to sort of test the water and see what my perspective is because he knows that I often don't bring into a discussion like years and years of sort of political opinion. And he almost says that I'm like a good sort of... um, measure of where like the average um sort of person in america might be on any given issue um 
and obviously now I'm a lot more knowledgeable and have been covering these issues for a long time. But yeah, there are certainly like pl plenty of moments still where I'll say like, oh yeah, I didn't realize this about the American political system or this is like a cultural reference that I don't really know at all or this is a part of American history that I just like may not have learned growing up. So um, yeah, in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm still learning these things. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, the idea of like a clean slate coming into college. Um, what does it mean to you to be an Asian American journalist and how has that definition changed over your career as a journalist? Um, I would say being an Asian American journalist is honestly a huge honor. Um, I know that sounds really cheesy, but that's, that is really how I feel. Um, I know that in the media industry and political journalism, um, we are obviously underrepresented. I think it is starting to change and it's changing for the better. Um, I think I think a lot about how I can hopefully be a helpful role model too. I think I wouldn't have said that even a couple of years ago because I would have felt like, well, that's a presumptuous thing to say. I'm still so young and how can I even think about being a role model for somebody who's younger? But um, actually, like I think at this point I've had um, enough experiences where I've had younger journalists and aspiring journalists who look like me, frankly, and have come up to me to say, hey, like, it means something to me to turn on CNN and see that you're reporting on the air and to know that um, that path could be open for me as well. Um, you know, it means something to me that I can sit in the front row of the White House press briefing and know that, yeah, like not many people who have looked like me and have had my background have been in that position. And um, yeah, that really means something to me. And being able to lean on other Asian American journalists who have really paved the path before me, that's been a really important part of my experience of um, growing as a journalist. I often think about the first time that my now really good friend, but I didn't know her at the time, um, her name is Kyung La, she's a correspondent for CNN based in Los Angeles. I've admired her for so long. Um, she's so incredible at what she does. Um, when I was first hired at CNN and I was starting to do some on-air work, she just reached out to me, even though we had never spoken before, we had never met, and she basically said, I want you to know that I love seeing you on air and knowing that you're getting these opportunities, and even though we don't know each other, I'm rooting for you, um, because we're both Korean-American women in this industry, and there are not that many of us. And that like stayed with me forever. And she's now one of my closest friends and closest colleagues in the newsroom. And yeah, that was just really, really meaningful. That's amazing. And your work that you've done also is so inspirational. I'm specifically just thinking about all the investigative work that you've done um, surrounding the hashtag Me Too movement. And I was hoping that we could talk a little bit more about that and like your work and how you went about covering something that was so um, sensitive to so many women and like how you first gained their trust into telling you their stories. Yeah, that was definitely a really meaningful um, reporting experience for me. Um, I've covered campaigns and elections and Capitol Hill and 
now the White House. And I think the experience I had covering the Me Too movement was some of the most memorable for me as a reporter. Um, it's really hard. It's really challenging to um, be on the phone with someone or be meeting with someone who just might be like really conflicted about whether or not they even want to share their story. Um, and you as the reporter are trying to draw them out, but you also certainly don't want to ever make them feel like they're, you know, under pressure or, you know, being pressured to say something they don't want to say or share something they don't want to say. Um, and I think just having the experience of talking to these women and sometimes men because the Me Too movement isn't just about women and going from, you know, the conversation, for example, being off the record initially, and then you have a series of conversations with them and then they tell you at the end of the process, you know, I've come to trust you. I just feel like you are going to do right by me and tell my story in the right way. And I think it's important that my story be out there. So I've decided that everything I've told you off the record can now be on the record. It is like this incredible feeling. Um, and I think is just kind of an incomparable experience that you can have in journalism, where you know that like in the process of reporting out a story, you really have gained someone's trust, right? There's nothing like knowing that somebody is you know, grappling with the decision of, do I want to go forward forward with, uh, you know, sharing a story that is like so personal, you know, often so painful or even traumatic, and then deciding, you know, in the course of talking it out with a reporter that they've decided this is like an important story for them to share. So, um, yeah, I, I really, I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but I have like almost like fond memories of covering the Me Too movement as, as difficult as those issues were. Um, because yeah, I, I think it just meant something else almost entirely to have the experience of like gaining somebody's trust like that. Um, many of the perpetrators from the Me Too movement come from the entertainment industry, but a lot of your investigative journalism surrounded politicians and, um, people who hold a lot of power in Washington. How do you think that journalism is different and what responsibility do you think you had as a political journalist to take down people with such immense legislative power? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that when the Me Too movement was sort of starting up in the States, it obviously very much started out West in the entertainment industry, um, movie directors, actors, um, people like that. And then I think it became clear that that issue and those sets of problems were so prevalent, like no matter where you looked. And turns out um, Washington DC and the government and elected officials were really no exception. And I think because I had already had experience covering Washington DC, that just ended up being my area of focus. And yeah, I think it was an important um, moment in the Me Too movement for people to see that the very problems and the power dynamics that were uncovered in the Me Too movement in industries like the entertainment industry, that those issues were just as prevalent, you know, in the halls of Capitol Hill or um, the White House or where have you. People, you know, places where 
powerful people um, are able to feel like they can sort of misuse and abuse their power. Um, so I think actually, uh, even though I had less experience sort of covering the entertainment world, I'm trying to think of an example where I might have done that. I don't think I did. I think most of my reporting centered on um, people in government. I actually probably assume that it's the same skills that you use as a journalist. Like it's, there's no difference in covering, you know, a famous movie director who might have um, acted inappropriately versus covering a member of Congress, for example, who may have also, you know, misused their powers. Definitely. And kind of a follow up on that, were you reporting on um, and uncovering, you know, abusers that do have so much power in government and Congress? Were you ever really fearful for your own safety? And did you find that victims were scared after telling you their stories, um, were worried about the ramifications of that and potentially like jeopardizing their own safety as well? Yeah, I think the safety issue was a really big one. I think when you're um, setting out to tell a story about someone who has power, then yeah, you're always going to worry about how will that affect me and my safety? Um, What might the backlash be? And will people believe me when I say that so-and-so did this to me and that person is someone with more power than me or more name recognition or fame? then yeah, I think all of those things um, uh, get considered. I think that I will probably remember more um, the people who told me afterwards that yes, like those things were really challenging and you know, I'm getting a lot of criticism online, for example, and that's really hard, but that they felt um, empowered and sort of assured in their decision to go forward, particularly when the person, if the person who told their story was then approached by somebody else telling them I had the same or very similar experience um, with that person that you were talking about. Um, I think in that way, like a lot of people actually ended up having the experience of, yeah, just feeling really empowered and um, sort of confident that the decision they made was the right one because if their decision to tell their story was able to convince even one other person to do the same, even though that person may have initially been scared or on the fence, they felt like, well, then it was all worth it. Yeah, I think that's a very powerful message to um, other women. You also had a lot of great investigative journalism for covering campaigns um, in 2016 and 2020. How did you go about maintaining neutrality and um, forming relationships with the candidates? Um, On the neutrality question, which I feel like I get asked a lot, um, I don't know. I think the answer is pretty simple. It's just to focus on my job, which is to report what I know and report what I think the public deserves to know. And I think that's kind of it. Um, You know, 
you cover a political campaign and there are going to be uh, fierce debates on, you know, coming at people coming at the issue that you're discussing from different angles and different sides. And yeah, people are going to be really opinionated. But like the thing that you can do as a reporter is just to lay out like, this is what we know. This is what the candidate is saying. This is what the candidate has said. And sometimes um, that involves, you know, fact checking them and saying, you know, the thing that so and so is saying is actually not accurate. And here's actually the reality. Um, I think that's sort of the best thing you can do as a journalist. Um, I don't feel like I go about every day sort of grappling with, well, how can I make sure I'm staying neutral? I just kind of do the reporting that I'm supposed to be doing and trust that yeah, that reporting is neutral because I'm just sort of laying out the facts as I know them. Definitely. And kind of narrowing more into your personal experience as a campaign embed or a reporter covering a campaign, um, you've mentioned before that in a lot of, like, the campaign took you to a lot of places where you felt like you were the only non-white person in the room and you were asked a lot, oh, where are you from? And so I wanted to ask you what your experience was like as an Asian American journalist and reporter on the trail and how that affected your reporting. Yeah, I mean, this actually sort of brings us back to the first thing we talked about, about how I didn't grow up in the States and I sort of had um, like fresh eyes on everything. I think covering the campaign, uh, particularly in 2016, which was the first time I um, covered a campaign full time, was incredibly eye opening. And I felt like I got to know the country in um, such a different way. Um, It's really different to spend time in, you know, bigger cities on the East Coast like I went to school in Boston and then in Washington, D.C. I spent some time in New York versus like going to these really rural areas in the middle of the country where I don't know if I might have ever gone to Iowa if I were not um, a campaign reporter. And it was definitely um, sometimes intimidating, sometimes uncomfortable, just knowing so well that when I walked into a gymnasium or an auditorium full of people, like, yeah, I'm probably the only person here who is not white. Um, And that did end up uh, sometimes being a part of the exchanges I had with voters that I was interviewing. Um, I've talked about this before, it just has like really stayed with me. Um, there was a Trump rally in Iowa where I was talking to, you know, interviewing this, this man and he sort of looked at me and said, Hey, you know, no offense to you, but you know, there are all these people coming from Asia, uh, to the U S and having families and, uh, you know, they're taking away our jobs and like, he didn't like that. And the sort of assumption there when he said no offense was, uh, that I was a part of that problem. And it sort it like took me aback because I felt like, is he saying that like I've, I've sort of cut the line? Like he thinks that I'm a part of the issue that he's describing where, um, it's people like me taking away jobs from people like him. And 
yeah, that like really stayed with me because it was such an informative um, and telling sort of comment from this person who like had his, you know, set of reasons for wanting to support Donald Trump and his candidacy. And as we obviously know very well now, like those were very resonant themes in Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, right? Sort of painting certain groups of people as the outsiders. You should fear people who look like this or people who you might think are not from the country. There was like an other element to um, his campaign rhetoric. And yeah, I got to like experience that um, on the ground. And again, like I think these are, these were conversations that I think I would not have had were I not a campaign reporter. And I'm really grateful that I got to have that experience. Yeah, I think you can try to understand why a rhetoric would appeal to a certain group of people, but you can't really until you go and immerse yourself in it and talk to them. I think that's really interesting. Um, moving on to 2020, and you covered Elizabeth Warren in the primary and, and then moved on to Biden in the general election. Did you know notice any differences and how the media treated a female presidential candidate versus a male presidential candidate? And did you reflect that in your journalism? Yeah, actually one of the um, <clears throat> biggest uh, stories that I reported on when I was reporting on Elizabeth Warren was the story of how in a meeting that Senator Warren had with Senator Bernie Sanders, Sanders had told her, I'm just paraphrasing here, I would need to look up the exact quote, but he had said something to her to the effect of, you know, a woman can't win the nomination. When I reported that story, it like really went off like a bomb. Um, and you can imagine, you know, on both sides uh, of the story, right? There are people who were just like furious that Bernie Sanders would have said that uh, to her, like how sexist is that? And then like many, many Bernie Sanders supporters who um, doubted the credibility of that story and said, this is an attempt to take him down. There's no way he would have said this. Or even if he did said it, even if he did say it, it doesn't matter. Um, and actually probably more than any other story I reported on, including some of the Me Too stories, that was the story that uh, had me on the receiving end of the most criticism and vitriol and threats. Like I, you know, had my husband telling me, you just can't look at your Twitter mentions for a while. It's really unhealthy. It's taking a mental toll. Um, and I think I didn't like see it coming. I didn't realize what an effect that would have on people, um, people who just didn't want to hear that someone like Bernie Sanders was capable of saying something like that to someone like Elizabeth Warren or sort of questioned the question that question that there might have been like a motivation behind me reporting that story. Um, so that was just like a really memorable sort of gender and politics moment for me in covering the campaign. 
I was really, really struck by what I would, you know, go to Elizabeth Warren rallies and talk to people who supported her or were inclined to support her. They may have been undecided, but they really liked her for all of these reasons, would love to see her become president. The number of times that uh, women, female voters said to me, I support her and I like her, but I just don't think the country is ready for a female president. Um, That was really interesting because there were all these women who wanted to see that happen, were supportive of uh, the idea of a woman becoming the next president, but they just felt like other people were not going to be ready for that. And they also just like didn't want to be disappointed. Like there was almost like a sense of self-protection there that I thought was really interesting. It's crazy to me to see, especially in the 2016 and 2020 elections, the amount of emotion that voters had and how that like clouded their sense of like just a journalist doing their reporting and accusing them of like reporting a story that didn't like look good on their candidate that they really support that they're saying oh it's the journalist that's wrong and it's the media that's wrong it's almost like their sense of like there was also at the same time this war on media but um I kind of want to zoom into on your experience in the room like when you saw your when you were covering your candidate and you were in a room with filled with 20 other reporters that are all from different networks and in a sense like you're competing against them, but then there are also like your community because you're on the road for so many nights. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to kind of talk about what that was like and what was the environment of, you know, campaign reporting went day to day when you would follow the candidate around and waiting for them to try to ask your one question. Like, what was all of that like? Um, yeah, I mean, being basically embedded with a campaign is so crazy. It is such a hard assignment um there is no like work-life balance right like whatever the candidate does whatever the can wherever the candidate goes you're supposed to be tracking their every movement and basically stalking them and following them them around wherever so there's no like work-life balance like you sign up to cover a campaign full-time and especially if you're a candidate specific reporter um, then yeah, it's like your full-time job and it's not full-time like nine to five, it's full-time like 24 seven, really. Um, I'm really glad that I did it. I think I did it at a moment in my personal life when I could have done it. I certainly couldn't do it now. I have, um, a two-year-old at home. I'm extremely pregnant with my second one. Um, but you sort of, make the you know you were talking about the other reporters who might be covering that candidate um you hopefully just develop relationships with the people who are sharing that experience with you so that you can make things more bearable you know i know the um so i wasn't a campaign embed but i was a campaign correspondent covering a candidate the campaign embeds i mean whatever i just described is like to the nth degree for them Um, it was really like lovely to watch the campaign embeds, the ones from the different networks assigned to cover Elizabeth Warren, for example, like they really banded together and they would, you know, really have each other's backs, like share information, um, about 
the coverage of the candidate um, and really just like be there for each other. And I know that some of them um, from 2020, like they'll probably just be like lifelong friends because it's such a bonding experience and they um, helped each other a lot, even though they were, yeah, technically competition. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Speaking of a work-life balance, you are now the senior White House correspondent at CNN. Um, What does the day-to-day look like um, in that position compared to covering a campaign, and what's it like traveling with the president? Um, My day-to-day is a little intense, mostly in that right now I'm working a morning schedule, so I am expected to be at the White House physically, by 6 a.m. on any given day so you know you can do the math on when my alarm clock needs to go off um it just really depends on you know really what the news is on any given day so for example today today felt like a really long day and a really busy day you know we have kevin mccarthy coming to the white house to meet with president biden so we were talking about that all morning And then um, sometime between 9 and 10, the news broke that FBI agents were searching President Biden's home in Rehoboth, Delaware. So we just sort of like quickly had to turn to that topic. I like raced to the camera and did a bunch of hits on that. And yeah, it was just one of those like very typical days where you think you're going into the day knowing what you're going to be talking about and what you're going to be focused on. And then the news just sort of takes you in a different direction. Um, Traveling with the president is really cool. I have been doing this job for only a year and I think I still have the experience of just like pinching myself and feeling like I can't believe this is where I go to work every day. And um, I think traveling with him or especially going abroad is a really special experience. the trip that I did recently to Asia last year um, when he went to South Korea was incredible just because I was born there and all of my family is still there and I think just having the experience of like being able to see my grandfather see my aunts and uncles and you know having them know that I was there to cover the president of the United States who was meeting with the president of South Korea and that I was doing it for CNN as a White House correspondent like all of that was really amazing and honestly really humbling and speaking about traveling you have been on Air Force One and we are very curious of what that was like and explaining to us what it looked like and just your experience your memories the best part of it all Yeah, I traveled on Air Force One for the first time, and actually it's still been my only time, so I've yet to go back. Um, When we flew back from Tokyo to Washington, D.C., so it was a very long flight. Um, I mean, honestly, I think it's really nice. I know that there are other White House correspondents who have been on the plane many times, and, you know, they'll kind of jokingly complain, like, well, it's not as nice as if you fly commercial or the food isn't always good. I thought it was really, really nice. Um, The seats were really big and they take really good care of you. Um, My experience was honestly like really weird and surreal, Um, not in a good way because 
when we were in the air is when the Uvalde shooting happened in the States. And um, the reporters don't have Wi-Fi access when you're on the plane, which I think a lot of people don't realize. You just think like you're on Air Force One, surely you can stay up to date on the news. You can't, you don't have access to the internet. There is, um, there are TVs. So if you have it turned on to CNN, for example, then you would see the headlines and it just happened to be a long flight. We were all tired, so the TVs were off. So we didn't know what had happened until the White House press secretary came back to the press cabin, sort of woke us up and told us, hey, this thing has happened in Uvalde. We're still gathering information, but just so you know. And I believe she told us at the time that um, the president was expected to make a statement once we landed. Um, that was just like a really jarring experience where you are just in the air for a long time. You're not expecting something huge to have happened back home. And then you find out in that sort of dramatic fashion that something completely awful um, had happened. And so we did the really unusual thing of there's like a phone that you can use to call the White House operator to get you patched through to someone back down on earth and um because the news was big enough we like use the reporters use that phone to call their colleagues just to let them know like you know this is what's going on air force one it was mostly unnecessary because by then the white house had already sort of addressed the issue and if anything we were almost playing catch up but we felt like given the gravity of the news, yeah, we should communicate with our colleagues and even let them know a small piece of information like, you know, our ETA for landing is, you know, this time or whatever. Um, but yeah, that was my first Air Force One experience and I didn't know what I was doing. I really had to have my colleagues tell me like, how do you operate this phone? What am I supposed to say? What does all this mean? And yeah, it was it was really like memorable and crazy when you're traveling with the president is are there any media norms that you have to abide by in different countries depending on where you are um i think for the most part we're pretty like much kept in the american media bubble um obviously the white house is coordinating with whatever you know country we're visiting to make sure that we are doing everything according to their sort of customs and rules. But no, I think if you are an American White House reporter covering the president, even in another country, you do exactly sort of what you would do if you were in the States. So maybe you go to a country where there are less, you know, press freedoms, where it wouldn't be acceptable for a reporter to try to shout questions at the president because that's just not something you do culturally. Um, we wouldn't suddenly stop trying to shout questions at President Biden just because in the country we're visiting that's less acceptable. We would still do our jobs in exactly the same way. And using that last question to kind of wrap up, we want to now go into our fun lightning round. 
This is a fly tradition where we just ask you really quick, fun questions. And so since you are a Georgetown alum, we have to ask you what your freshman dorm was and what was your go-to decor for your room? New South one, no decor. I had like a pretty depressing looking room. I was also in New South. I was in New South Korea. <laughs> she was in Harbin. I'm in Harbin, yes. And then what's your favorite restaurant in DC? Um, we recently went to Astoria and it was Yum. amazing. Have you been? I haven't, but my mom has. It's so great. Yes. It's so good. <laughs> I still have yet to go, so I will write that down on my list of restaurants to go to. And then our final question is that we are just absolutely in love with your dog. So if you could oh just like God. tell He's us so a little cute. bit more about him and just like any quirks that he has. Yeah, his name is Bandit. I'm also absolutely in love with him. <laughs> Um, he's a Wheaton Terrier rescue. We got him um, in like the most rural part of Ohio. Um, he's missing a back leg, but he gets around great. But he's like definitely really traumatized, but we don't know like what the story is. So I guess you could call that a quirk. So he's terrified of noises, going outside. He doesn't like to go on walks in the city and it makes us feel really guilty and wish that we just like lived in the countryside somewhere, which is where he's the happiest. Um, he's just really sweet and um, thankfully gets along great with our two-year-old and will hopefully get along well with the new baby too. Thank you so much for your time with us today. We really had a really fun conversation with you, super informative. So thank you so much. Thank you, thank, thank you for you. having me. Thanks for listening to The Fly. You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kelvin Doe, Zan Hawk, Robin Wang, Kenneth Jackson, and Julian Zeitlinger. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Austin Culpepper. Our production team is Max Paley and Will Hayes. Emeritus Managing Director is Sam Kehoe. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ng and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of The Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening and fly with you soon.